Hey, friends, and welcome back to the Old Fashioned On Purpose podcast. I am very excited for today's episode because we're going to do a deep dive into a topic that I think you're probably already familiar with and maybe even dabbled in. But if you're anything like me, you're just needing a little bit of extra oomph to really master the whole process. And I'm talking about compost. Uh, I think most homesteaders have dabbled with compost, whether you have a pile of cow manure or horse manure like me, or maybe some chicken manure. But how do you know if you're doing it so it is going to be safe for your garden, so it's going to be the most nutritious? Um, how do you handle weed seeds and the, the cold uh, techniques and the hot techniques? There's just so many questions and so much technicality. So I am so excited to have a compost queen with me today. Kate Flood is here. She is from New South Wales, Australia. I think she's the first Australian I've ever had on the podcast, which was evident in the fact that I totally messed up our first recording because I didn't know the whole time zone difference because it's substantial. <laughs> but anyway, she has a book <laughs> and she is um, known as Compostable Kate. She teaches compost so well and in such an understandable way. I cannot wait to chat. So welcome, Kate. I'm so thrilled to have you. Thank you, Jill. It's lovely being here. And, and yeah, time zones are hard. So it's totally very fun. hard. <laughs> yes. That's why I'm having my, my morning cup of tea. I actually am awake at 5 a.m. So a 6 a.m. start is good for me. So yes. I hope the time is, is, is good for you. It's it not, is. It doesn't look like it's about to be your bedtime. No, it's 2, it's 2 p.m. in the afternoon here. So it's 6 a.m. Oh, the following day there, right? Like Yes. 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 That's what right. What is today? Today is Monday for me. Yeah. Tuesday for you. Yeah. <laughs> so hard to wrap my mind around that. <laughs> so, oh my goodness. But yeah, so we're, I'm learning about international time zones this week. Go me. But anyway, yeah, we were chatting before I hit record. Just, you know, I've, I've played with compost. Actually, compost was the biggest, like, the impetus that started our homestead. We had horses when we bought our property and I realized we didn't have a way to deal with all the horse manure. We couldn't afford a tractor. And so this horse manure was piling up and I was like, what are we going to do with it? I can't afford to get it hauled off. And the compost pile was really one of those dominoes that ended up jumpstarting our homestead journey. And so I've, I've done it since then. I've done it over a decade, but I, I've never been super confident in it. So I'm excited for you to be here. Can you kind of give us a little bit of background on you and why you're so passionate about this topic? Yes, absolutely. So for me, making compost just feels like the most actionable, rewarding bit of climate activism we can all be doing in our own house. So I started my own composting journey from my lovely mother, the original compost queen. She has been doing it since the 70s. She's an old-time hippie. And it's, it's interesting because it's like gone from being quite a small niche, hippie kind of alternative thing to being much more mainstream. But I was lucky enough to be raised in a household where we always had a compost pile, um, which was definitely not the norm as I was growing up. Uh, and so then when I moved out of home in my 20s, I forced my housemates to compost and at that point, you know, we, we had successes and failures and it's just been something that I've always done. And now that I have three of my own small people, I really want my kids to live in a household where we don't put precious resources like food scraps into the trash. We, we return those nutrients to our soil. And so I'm a, a trained high school teacher and one of my subjects that I taught was food tech. So that's like cooking, um, home ec, maybe you call it in the States. Mm -hmm. And I just used to feel really distressed that I would be teaching these soon-to-be adults how to cook 
But then at the end of each lesson, we would throw our food scraps into the bin and I would take as many of the food scraps home as I possibly could, but it was a school of a thousand kids, so I couldn't take all of them home. And I would, I would really talk to the principal and try and get compost happening, but there was always pushbacks to it. And so for me, I'm an educator that's really passionate about teaching these life skills that I think everyone should know about. Uh, So that's how my Instagram page came about during COVID. Um, And it's also how my book, The Compost Coach, came about because I wanted it to, I wanted to break down all of the fundamental steps that people need to know to successfully do this at home. Yeah. I love how you you were talking, or I guess I relate to it so much about like food going into the trash at the school. I think about that kind of stuff all the time. And sometimes I feel like a lot of people don't, it doesn't even register that that's happening. And it just, it bothers me. Like we have a little restaurant. It's not very big, but like just, just scraping plates after we clear tables, like there's so much food that goes in the trash. And so we end up bringing yes. home to the chickens and the pigs. Cause I'm like, I cannot handle throwing this in the, the garbage. And a lot of it's not really composting. It's more than just veggies. It's like potatoes and meat. So with the pigs and the chickens get it, yes. but it just makes me feel better when I know it's just not going in. A plastic oh, totally. Bag. Yeah. Yeah. No, look, that's, and I think that's the interesting mindset of being a homesteader. You don't, you really don't think about these things as trash. You think about them as resources that you can cycle into one of your systems and you're feeding your scraps to livestock is a really fantastic closed loop system, especially if you then successfully can compost their manure, which is what what started it all for you. And I think it's it's really interesting because for me, I feel like making compost is this secret special gateway activity that often opens up people's eyes to other um, forms of climate activism that they can be doing at home and other ways to protect our planet. Because once you start reframing the fact that these resources are not trash, they're treasure, then you start thinking, well, maybe I'll rip up a a little patch of grass that I'm having to water all the time and fertilise and actually not getting anything edible or beautiful from it. Um, And, you know, I'll plant a new garden for pollinators or I'll plant some some food in my garden. But it, it just... It, yeah, it's like this interesting gateway activity. Um, and I can see, yeah, it's it's a story that I see echoed over and over. And it's, it's interesting that that happened with you as well. Yeah, I think it's just that breaking that modern mindset. We're just, we just, we break all the connections somehow in our modern world of just how, you know, yes. of soil and understand that food comes from the soil and we're a part of that. And, you know, just even the, how nature doesn't waste anything yet in our modern little mindsets, we put everything in plastic and we break all of the beautiful structures that nature has in place to turn waste quote unquote into treasure. And so I think, like you said, it's just a beautiful gateway when you start to go, wait a second. I've thought of this as disgusting. Manure is disgusting. Food waste is disgusting. And it's actually not. It's actually a beautiful thing. So I think it's just that little shift yes. we have to make. Yeah. Totally. And that's something that I really like to emphasize. Instead of going out to a big box store or a landscaping store to bring in these nutrients, to bring in fertilizer, to bring back compost, you can actually shop your own garden. And I talk about putting on your compost colored glasses because once you see the world in that way, you can see that we actually, especially on a homestead um, where you have access to soil because, you know, lots of, lots of us don't have, have access to soil and land. But if you do, you're in a really lucky position to be having this organic matter that you can then return back into your soil to feed it for, for your next season's crops. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. And so I, I was a food tech home ec teacher 
And now my big recipe that I'm teaching is how to make perfect compost. And I like to teach it as a bit of a recipe because I think it sort of simplifies the process because making compost is like a little bit of a combination of an art and a science. But if you simplify it to the four universal ingredients that you need to add into compost to get the balance right, to feed the microbes, then you can really nail it. So those four ingredients are your nitrogen-rich scraps, So they're things like manure, food waste, coffee grounds, your green plant materials, so grass clippings, hedge prunings, and they need to be balanced with carbon. So that is generally the dead, dry organic matter. So some of my favourite forms of carbon, aged wood chips, autumn leaves. You can also use manufactured paper products. You need to check for PFAS, which is a really tricky, troubling, forever chemical. Um, But I explain a really simple olive oil test in my book to check for that. Um, But you can use things like newspaper and shredded up cardboard because they're really rich in carbon. And what you need to think about is we, sure, we're feeding things like worms and beetles and slaters. I think in the States you call them Mm -hmm, (laughs) roly-polies. What what do you call them where you are? Slaters. Slaters. Okay, interesting. Yeah. yeah. No, it's it, it's I know, yeah, it's it's one of those interesting compost creatures because there's so many different names. Just in the next state over from where I live, um, in Victoria, people there call them butchy boys. Oh <laughs> my gosh, yeah. They're cute. <laughs> the tall of the life Yeah, it's yeah. cute. They are cute creatures. Um the life in, in your soil needs this balance of nitrogen and carbon. And so often people just think about adding manure or adding food waste. Um, and that's when you get a wet, sloppy, stinky pile. So you have to balance. In compost language, you call it your greens and your browns, yep. which is a little bit confusing because the greens aren't always coloured green. You know, manure right. is not green, yes. it's brown. And then the other two ingredients of perfect compost are water So all of the life on earth needs access to water and often our nitrogen-rich scraps are kind of juicy and full of water, but in the height of summer, that's not going to be enough. So Mm. we do need to monitor the moisture of our pile, add more water if need be, because if a pile of compost dries out, then the biology will die off. And without the creatures of the compost, you're not going to make beautiful compost. Equally, if it's been a really wet season, Compost that is too moist can become what's called anaerobic, which means it's proliferating the wrong bacteria and it will become stinky and smelly. So then you need to turn it. So the final ingredient is oxygen. And that kind of feels like an intangible ingredient, but actually we can add oxygen into our piles in a number of ways. So we can turn our compost to get oxygen into the core of the the organic matter. Um, You can layer your compost with things like uh, wood chips. So wood chips create little pore spaces of oxygen and that's a really easy static way to add in air into our pile without turning it all the time. Um, You can also add in compost lungs. So that's like a PVC pipe drilled with lots of holes and you put that into your pile and you build the organic matter around that. So oxygen is essential because otherwise we get the proliferation of the bacteria that causes the smells and actually can release methane. So people don't realise that your um, compost pile, if you don't balance it right, can actually be producing methane, which obviously we want to avoid. Sure. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, the turning is one. I know when we first started 
that felt really intimidating because I had a maybe a bigger pile than I needed. I had built a really big bin and then I was like, I'll just turn it. And then I realized turning it was not a small feat. It was actually a rather big (laughs) ordeal. So then I was like, I kind of gave up and then it got weird. So yeah, I like the idea of you said the wood chips kind of bring the pockets of air. So maybe if you have a larger space, you wouldn't have to be under your pitchfork as much. Yes, yes, absolutely. And that that is one of the things that can get people stuck is the feeling that you need to be really turning your compost all the time and, you know, doing all of these processes all the time. But I think we need to remind ourselves that when you get the balance of carbon and nitrogen correct, compost happens every day in nature. So if you pull back the, the leaves on a forest floor, you see the most beautiful compost and that's without any human intervention. But you do need to get those balance of ingredients right. A really fantastic compost maker and market gardener in the UK, Charles Dowding, mm-hmm. he yeah. has really large scale compost piles. Um, he, so he's, I have four feature interviews in my book and he's one of them. And his, his compost bays are just like the Rolls Royce of composting. That's why yes. I really wanted to feature him. Um, but he only turns his compost once. And that's because he has those layers so perfectly executed that there are pockets of oxygen throughout the mix. So you don't have to feel intimidated. But if you just have a big pile of manure without any carbon, then yes, you will need to be turning that really regularly. Okay. And that's kind of what which I is, do. Which can be backbreaking work. <laughs> yeah. And I, I mean, at this point, we have a really big pile of manure that ends up accumulating over years. So we will just turn it with our tractor or, or something like that. Because yes. it would be almost impossible to do by hand. But I was going to ask you that. Well, now I have all these questions <laughs> that you, that now that you said that. So first, let me ask this. So it makes sense. The, can yes. you explain the carbon nitrogen ratio a little bit? Cause I've, I've seen a lot of different yes. formulas and some people make it really complex and intimidating. And uh, yes. I'd love to know your, your take on that. Yeah, absolutely. So that's a little bit of compost language. Sometimes it's just referred to as the CN ratio. Mm-hmm. So what that means is the amount of carbon relative to nitrogen. So in all of our compost making ingredients, uh, there will be, some carbon and there will be some nitrogen some ingredients so wood chips have a lot of carbon so that has a high cn ratio whereas grass clippings have very little carbon so they have a low cn ratio there are mathematical calculations that you can do to work out the exact sand ratio because what we need to be mindful of is in our compost piles the compost microbes ideally like a CN ratio of about 30 parts carbon to one part nitrogen. But that can become really tricky for a home compost maker to work out. And I'm not expecting you to get out your calculator and get out your scales and do that. So what I like to emphasize. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) I don't think anyone would compost if they had to do that. In in commercial composting facilities, they have worked all of this out so that they do get the nail the ratio. But, you know, this is for large scale piles that are made in in a commercial setting. But for a home composter, what you just need to be aware of is mixing I generally say 50-50 greens to browns. So if you have aged wood chips, they might have a CN ratio of 400 to 1. So then balance those with your manure or with your grass clippings that have a much lower CN ratio. And you will know if you get the balance right 
by the smell of it. So we have evolved to have these beautiful compost making tools, our fingers and our eyes and our nose, and we get direct feedback from our compost pile. So if we haven't added enough carbon, your pile will start to smell. Mm. Or if we have added a huge amount of grass clippings at one point, you'll notice that the conditions become a bit slimy. So you need to be looking at your compost. You need to be feeling it. You can wear gloves if you don't want to get your hands in. But I always like to choose an ingredient that's high in carbon and mix it with an ingredient that's low in carbon. And that generally gets the balance right. Um, it can be tricky if you're using something like loosen. I think in the States you might call it alfalfa. Oh, yeah. Uh, because, yeah, um, sometimes that's counted. People consider that a source of carbon. But actually that has quite a balanced CN ratio. So it's not a very good source of brown, carbon-rich material. Uh, because actually, even though it kind of looks like it, it should have a lot of carbon, it has a lot of nitrogen in it. So I... I am always emphasising wood chips, partly because in the States you can use, actually here in Australia as well, there's this awesome free app called Chip Drop uh, and you can connect in with um, local arborists who who actively want to give you wood chips for free. So it's a really cool app. It depends on where you live. I, I think, um, you know, there may be some areas where you can't access it. But you can pile up wood chips, age them, and the reason why I like to add aged wood chips into my compost is because fresh wood chips, as they break down, they steal nitrogen from the either surrounding soil or from the compost itself. But if you age them, and sometimes with, with hardwood or here in Australia with eucalyptus, mm. I need to age them for about 18 months before I use them oh, in my compost. Wow. And Yeah, so a long time. Because that's partly with eucalyptus because of the volatile oils. So they have slightly allopathic, which means like plant suppressing hormones within, within the oil. Yes. But when you age them and then mix them with nitrogen, those, um, those allopathic properties are broken down by the compost microbes. But if you age wood chips, then it, it, the process of them breaking down is much more speedy. And the beautiful thing about a wood chip pile, you can make compost just with wood chips alone. If you keep them moist and it's not particularly high in, well, it doesn't have, it has very little nitrogen, but it's full of fungi and our soil as a whole yeah. is lacking fungi and plants actually need to work with fungi in the soil to access nutrients. So if you're aging them off, they're going to have more available nitrogen in the mix you're going to have a high um, portion of fungi in your compost and it's they're, they're beautiful to work with. I also love autumn leaves. They're not as high in carbon, uh, but you can make leaf mould as well. So that's a really another really simple form of compost um, and your leaf mould you can use to make potting soil. So, yeah, I just think there's, there's all of these resources that we have on hand and they're too precious to be giving away. I always despair when I see people using leaf blowers blowing their leaves away, bagging them up and then getting rid of them or burning them. And you just think, oh, you know, we're stripping our, our yards every season of all of these nutrients and then we are feeding them with petrochemical-based fertilisers. Yep. Yep. And you just think this is, this we're going about this completely the wrong way. If we just keep those nutrients in our own backyard, then we have this self-containing, self-feeding cycle 
yeah, it's, it's, it, it, and you know, it's just this change in mindset. So yes, it's something that we, we can all do. Absolutely. Yeah. It's so funny. And I think we've just been marketed to so well that, oh yeah, get rid of the leaves yes. and all manure is bad. So you, you cart that off in your plastic bags and then buy this that will sell you instead. And I'm like, it doesn't make sense yes. when you start to actually think about it. Yeah. Totally. And also the, the, there's some, I talk about a, a commercial compost cautionary tale in my book. So a, a big issue with commercial compost, there's a couple of issues with it. First of all, it's very hard to regulate the waste stream that gets into commercial compost, even when it's marketed as organic, that in terms of the regulation, at least here in Australia, it's very tricky to make sure that everything in there actually is organic. So what has happened here in Australia, and it's happened in the States as well, there's a, there's a persistent herbicide, part of the amino yes. pyrolid group. Um, Done it. I've been there, yeah. experienced it. Yep. Yep. Keep going. Keep going. Yes. <laughs> it's horrible. Keep going. <laughs> What have we left behind in our race towards progress? That's the question that I set out to answer in my latest book, Old Fashioned on Purpose. It's no secret to people like you and I that something is rippling through humanity at the moment. More and more people are feeling pulled and called to cast aside the baggage of modern life in favor of something more meaningful. To me, an old-fashioned on-purpose life is an awakening. It's a remembering. It's a returning to what matters. And it's available to everyone, whether you have a homestead or not. So the book isn't out yet. It's going to hit shelves on September 26th. But if you pre-order right now, I've put together a kind of outrageous package of bonuses. There's a never-before-seen sourdough ebook. There's home dairy guides. There's printable wall art, uh, a virtual meet and greet, all kinds of stuff. And you can get that right away. So if you want to check it out, get all the details, head on over to oldfashionedbook.com. You can see the cover. You can check out the bonuses. And I can't wait for you to hold it in your hands. All right, now back to our episode. And so this, this herbicide is used on broadleaf weeds and it's often pl- sprayed on pasture. And what happens is the herbicide actually may kill the weeds that you want, but it also binds to the hay and straw um, in that pasture. And then when that is used as a compost ingredient or when livestock eat that hay and straw, this, this herbicide doesn't break down. It actually gets stronger in these processes. So it accumulates up the food chain. And what then happens is, and it's, it's, it's pretty notorious in commercial compost now, this herbicide, as it breaks down in the compost pile, some chemicals actually can break down in a, in a compost bin or pile or commercial facility, but this particular herbicide doesn't, it gets stronger. So then when people, when home gardeners and homesteaders use this commercial product on their soil and on their plants, and you know then they plant something like tomato seeds or, or peas, and then there's either a really low germination rate or you see cupping and curling of, of leaves, especially things in the nightshade family, um, or plant death or, or no fruiting, that nine times out of ten is because of compost contamination in a commercial facility. And this, thankfully, this herbicide does break down after about a year to 18 months. You need to fork over the soil, water it regularly and leave it. You can plant grain manure and things like that, but 
um, nightshade peas won't grow very well. It will break down over time, but it can be a huge setback to a, a season or two or three yeah. um, in your garden. And it's a really tricky thing. You can test for it. So um, if you if you get in a whole heap of commercial compost, get a small pot of it and plant some seeds in it first and just watch the growth, watch what happens. Um, because if you apply it to your garden without testing it, you can really end up with a, with a horrendous amount of garden heartbreak. You know, it's just, it, it, it kills me that this happens. Also with, with commercial compost as well, there's a huge amount of microplastics in it and, and PFAS as well. So I think if we can make compost at home, it is so much safer for the soil. It's, it has so many benefits. It's so much more energy efficient and it's safer. Yeah. Yeah, you just, yeah, amen. We, I've, I've dealt with it now two separate times. And like you said, it's just a disaster. Once I realized yes. what it was the first time, I couldn't figure it out. And then I, I figured it out from Googling it and it was just dev- just so devastating and took several years yes. for it to go away. And then we accidentally had yes. it come in, come in again two years ago. So it's just, it's so frustrating to me that something as beautiful as compost or aged manure or whatever that's supposed to feed the soil is poisoning it. And it just makes, it just makes me angry, yes. frankly, that we're even having to deal with oh, well, it. It, it should make you angry because the fact that, that consumers are paying for a product that is then killing their plants, killing the biology in your soil. Yeah. It really, it, it does. It should make you angry because it's crazy. You know, yeah. you're paying for, for a product that is contaminating your soil long-term. Um, and you know, it does break down after a while, um, but it depends on the volume of amino pyrolid as well. You know, like right. there's a lot of it. It's going to take a long time. So yeah, there's, there's, it, it's definitely worth getting upskilling in this and um, talking to your neighbors. You know, if you feel, if you've got a big homestead, but you don't have quite enough organic matter, then you can collectively make compost as well. You know, you might have a lot of deciduous trees and your neighbor might have a lot of manure and you know together with those those carbon and nitrogen sources you could make compost as well um, there's a free global app called shareways which connects people with compost piles or compost bins to people that have scraps it's a more useful app in the city really because um, it's, it's generally more active in the city because people that live in apartments don't have access to, right. to compost bins and piles, they can connect in with that. And I just love the idea of community compost making and um, those relationships and friendships that can happen over a compost pile. And it happened to, to, so we live now in rural New South Wales, but when we lived in Sydney, a big city in New South Wales, I was on the Share Waste app as a compost host mm-hmm. and I did make beautiful friends in our neighbourhood from it. And yeah, it's just, I just think it's a really great point of connection. Yeah, that's yeah, that's brilliant to be able to come together. I actually hadn't thought of that. We we're pretty isolated from neighbors, but if if someone's in a uh, urban environment, I think that's that's just an awesome idea to get together and do it. Yes. Yeah, yeah. No, it, it is it's it's one of those things that collectively we we're, we're stronger when we work together. But I think it's it, it is important like I like to to think about having an understanding where our food is grown, um, but equally it's just as important knowing who's making our compost or, or if you are working with a neighbour, knowing what their livestock is being fed. So asking these questions 
is really important um, because compost microbes, especially, I know you touched on, on hot composting. So the hot composting process can kill a lot of pathogens, but there are some persistent chemicals that can't break down like aminopyrrolid. Um, but hot compost is, is a really awesome uh, method to explore because I feel like it's, it's like, like a magical transformation that the microbes in the mix that you're wanting to activate are called thermophilic microbes. And as they consume your scraps, they actually, one of their byproducts is heat and they can create temperatures. I'm going to say this in Celsius, so it's going to say, sound right. low. So maybe you, you can help me convert it convert, to Fahrenheit. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so the thermophilic microbes can make heat of 55 to 60 degrees Celsius, which brings it out of the temperature danger zone. So pathogens can proliferate in lower temperatures, but once it gets that hot, your compost becomes really stable and really safe. So composting large amounts of manure um, in a hot compost pile is a really useful thing to do because E. coli and salmonella can't proliferate once the temperature gets to that point and stays that point for a couple of days. And hot compost can be, it's sort of like the, the next step up from your slow, cool compost. So uh, people often start with a compost bin that they add a pile of, they add their, their caddy of kitchen scraps to, they add um, an equal volume autumn leaves and layer that up. Um, but hot compost is made a little bit differently to that. So you need to build your pile or your compost bin all at once. So you're needing okay. to have that volume of waste in one go and that helps those thermophilic microbes spring to life. Water is really essential in the hot composting process as well. So you need to be watering your pile as you're building it because those microbes actually use up that water pretty quickly. So you need to be adding water to your mix and it isn't a hands-off process. You need to be turning it regularly. I make hot compost in large scale bays, but I also make hot compost in 400 litre compost bins, oh, okay. which for compost purists have, it's it's so, it's something that people have, have wanted to see me do. Cause they're like, no, you can't make hot compost in 400 litres because traditionally it's piles of at least 1,000 litres. Mm. But I add a couple of special activators to my mix and I get blisteringly hot temperatures that are not as self, so there's not as much critical volume to make it self-insulating, but my hot compost stays hot for at least two weeks, which is plenty of time wow. to kill pathogens. Yeah, it's amazing. It is really, it's magical. And so one of the, the activators that I add is a homemade one called Bakashi compost. So this is a, a form of pre-compost. You ferment your scraps in an enclosed container and you add an inoculated brand, wheat bran material and the, the specially selected microbes that are in the wheat bran, bacteria that produce lactic acids um, and specially selected yeasts. Um, and it's kind of like making sauerkraut with your scraps. Okay. So yeah. the reason why I like to use it as an activator is I have a couple of Bakashi bins on the go that are fermenting and when I've got around four or five full of my food waste, then I build my hot compost pile and add those in and layer it with carbon-rich materials. And the nitrogen in the fermented food waste is readily available to the thermophilic microbes because it's fermented and it breaks down really quickly. Um, so that nitrogen is, is available very quickly. And, yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting form of composting. It's very different to the aerobic 
composting systems like hot or cold compost or a worm farm. You make it in oxygen-free conditions. So you squish down your waste. But it's a really flexible system. So people that eat meat or eat dairy um, or eat spicy, oily food, all of those scraps can be added into your Bokashi system without any problem. Um, Whereas sometimes in a compost bin, if you add meat, um, you can encourage rodents. But in a Bokashi system, you can add all of that. I then, with my hot compost bins, I do add rodent and snake-proof mesh to the bottom. But I've found that... I've experimented not doing that and I know I do have some rodent activity in our backyard because we have chickens and chickens are so messy so you often have vermin. I've experimented not adding rodent-proof mesh to the bottom of my bins and I've found that I haven't had any mice or rodents because the fermented scraps are reasonably acidic. As they compost down, the pH returns closer to neutral. But I've found that, that rats don't, don't, don't seem to like Bokashi, even when there's delicious things like meat scraps or bones in there. So it's a really, yeah, it's, a, it's another interesting form of compost making. And that was something that I wanted to explore in my book, all of these different methods, because there are so many ways to return our nutrients to the soil. Um, and this is a great small-scale method. You know, you can, you can actually keep your Bokashi bins inside and... Yeah, it, it's there is there is a compost solution for for your home, regardless of if you have a garden or not, or if you have a small or big home. And I feel like that's really empowering to know. Yeah, I love that it's not just the one way, one only, and then it kind of gives us no excuses <laughs> to not get that totally. food waste back to where yes. it belongs. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's right. So, and you know, I think. Some, go ahead. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Go, no, go ahead. I was just going to say it was. It's interesting that the timing of all of this because you know COVID created the opportunity for lots of people to be at home and to start thinking about their their own backyards in a different way and to start thinking about maybe I can grow some food and maybe I can actually do something as opposed to just grass or lawn and. I think then that the next step of that, and it's definitely been the case that people then, as soon as you start thinking about plants, you often start switching into your soil and soil health. Yeah. And and it can feel really intimidating and it can feel like you can't do anything. But actually composting is such a lovely, flexible process. And if you can feed the life in your soil with homegrown amendments and homegrown homemade compost, then you're going to have a much healthier backyard. Yeah. And it's not going to cost you a bunch of money at the garden store. No. Yeah, that's absolutely right. That's yeah. Buying in compost is, is really expensive. And, you know, I just think for, for anyone that has access to deciduous leaves and if you're not wanting to do any hands-on compost making, but you're wanting to enrich your soil, start with leaf mold. So pile up your leaves you can use um, chicken wire or cages. Pile up your leaves and keep them moist. It may take between a year to 18 months for them to break down. Uh, to speed up that process, you can mow over them with a lawnmower. Keeping them moist throughout all of the seasons is important. You're going to have beautiful, not very high nutrients, but incredibly moisture-retentive compost at the end that's very high in fungi and very high in carbon. And we know that our future gardens are going to be hotter and drier than ever before. And leaf mold, because it is so moisture retentive, is the most awesome mulch to apply back onto your garden beds. And you can turn it into potting mix by adding in some worm castings or compost 
adding in washed river sand or something like perlite for the, the airy mix. And so we can really be making all of all of these products at home, but they take time. So you can't just go out to the shop and get things instantly. It, it's, you know, instead of the, the slow food move, movement, it's the slow gardening movement. But you're going to end up making amendments that are so much better for your soil and, and safe as well, which is really important to consider. Absolutely. And what's the time frame? You may have said it, but just to reiterate, the time frame of a, of a hot compost bin versus a slow bin. Sure. So s- slow bins can take up to a year to fully break down and cure. That might seem like, oh, this is taking so long, but actually with slow, cool compost, you're going to have more nitrogen in it. Nitrogen isn't stable. So in a hot compost pile, you're going to produce it a lot quicker. If it's a big pile, the active decomposition can be as little as a month to six weeks. But quite a lot of the nitrogen is off-gassed in that process. But something that people often forget to do, and I really emphasise it whenever I'm talking to people about compost, I've got a whole chapter on it in my book, is to cure your compost. So we can get so attached to quick compost, to the fiery temperatures of a hot compost pile. Uh, You can make something that looks like finished compost in as little as six weeks, but you need to then cure it. And that's a really simple process, but people often overlook it. That basically is once the temperature in a hot compost pile has returned to the ambient outdoor temperature, so it's cooled down, you need to just let it sit. If you've added a lot of manure, there's really clear research that says you need to cure it for a minimum of 12 weeks Mm. after the temperature has cooled down. So there are important processes that happen at those cooler temperatures that allow things like manure to be safe and stable to add back into your garden. So if you've had active um, decomposition for, you know, let's say six weeks, then add another 12 weeks onto that. So even when it's hot and fast, it's not actually that fast. You need to be a little bit patient with compost making, Uh, but you know, that's, that's significantly quicker than a, than a cold slow pile. Yeah. And you wouldn't have to cure the slow pile necessarily, right? Since it's kind of doing that in the process. Correct. Yes. Okay. Yes, that's right. By the time a year's done, that's, that all of that's happened um, because it's the, those cooler temperatures the whole time. Yeah, so, you know, there's, there's these, these very different methodologies. And I actually think if you have this space, have a cold pile and a hot pile going mm. because you're going to have, they, they have different life in those compost piles. So our compost piles are not inert. What we are actually doing with them is breeding up all of this great bacteria, beautiful fungi, all of these forms of life that our soil needs. So yes, a compost does have nitrogen and it does have minerals, but actually what you're doing is feeding the life in your soil with a whole heap more life. So our plants only can access all of these nutrients in the soil and in your compost because of the life in it. An overworked soil ends up dying. So the life in your soil in a really overworked backyard can actually have ha, have nothing left in it and then your plants are going to struggle. So there, we have been talking about soil extinction um, and that's because of the life in the soil dying. Um, so adding compost that's full of life into your soil is the best thing to do because if you're getting in commercial fertiliser that's made from uh, petrochemicals, that's actually, it's like a really quick Band-Aid fix. It's give, maybe giving you a, a hit of NPK, yeah. but 
ultimately it's killing the life in your soil. So you create this cycle of dependency where you have to keep on applying it every season. But with compost, if you're feeding um, the life in your soil compost, you actually end up needing less of it. So Charles Dowding's done some really interesting tests with this. With no dig gardening, you need to apply a lot of compost at the beginning, but then each season after that you need less Mm. because you've got this really alive substrate of soil. So it's there's so many benefits for it, Jill. You know, it's it's just something that we all need to to master. And it's not hard. Right. And it's fun and a little bit addictive as well. For sure. I know. And, then, and that's what I, I feel like so many of these old-fashioned skills do get addicting. And people who don't understand, they're like, this, you're so weird. What's wrong with you? And I'm like, you don't understand. It's like just fun. It's just weirdly fun. The things I, that I get excited over. So. Totally. And I reckon it's because of the, the magical nature of microbes. You know, like yeah. even making sourdough bread, you know, you've got yeah. water and you've got flour but then when you introduce microbes into the mix in, in your starter, sourdough starter, that's when you have this amazing transformation. And it's exactly the same with compost. So when, you know, you've had food scraps and you have autumn leaves and who's going to get excited about that? When you yeah. mix them right and you layer them correctly, then they turn into this most beautiful form of soil that you can you can actually, you know, use in so many different ways. And it is, it is exciting yeah. and it is rewarding, but For it sure. does take time. Yeah. And, and I feel like I think the people who are already doing slow food can relate to the slow, like you said, slow gardening. Yeah. We just have to get rid of that instant mindset, which we're so, you know, modern culture just kind of feeds us literally and figuratively. That's the only way. But once we step out of that, I think it's pretty easy to see that's worth it. Yes. Yes, that's right. And, and I just like to keep on reminding people that may have had a compost failure that compost gets made in mother nature every day so it it is totally doable and there there are going to be hurdles you know if you add too much food waste in the heart of summer you might have lots of vinegar flies that come Mm, into the mix and you know that there are things that you'll need to overcome but so often the solution is carbon so never leave food scraps exposed on the surface of a compost bin cover it and protect it with with carbon rich materials so flies can't lay their their eggs and produce larvae or maggots in your pile also just checking the moisture as well so a really wet pile is going to proliferate anaerobic bacteria and it can also encourage things like flies or cockroaches so doing a squeeze test is a useful thing grabbing a handful of compost and giving it a squeeze it should feel like a wrung out sponge Mm. so maybe one possibly two droplets of moisture might come out but if you grab a handful and you you know heaps of water comes out it's too wet and you're going to have compost that actually unfortunately is not very good for your soil Mm. because aerobic bacteria can produce a group of chemicals called phototoxins which are not good for your soil so just checking those four things your nitrogen carbon oxygen moisture once you just think of it in those terms they are totally monitorable um, and tweakable as well and then you'll, you'll start working out in your backyard. I have lots of manure. I have this, and this ends up being a good balance um, because there's no one recipe for perfect compost. 
it re- there's so many different things you can add into the mix. Uh, so you do need to experiment. But I think, you know, as an adult, we, we don't get to experiment very much. Yeah. And it's, it's a really fun thing to do. For sure. And I mean, you can learn so much from books and, and coaching. And I love all that. But I think sometimes the very best experiences are you just have to go, okay, there is no proven path. I just in my exact situation. So I just have to figure it out. And yes. that's been some of the most fun aspects of homesteading for me is like, oh, no one's done this before yes. in this exact way. So I get to be first and it's fun and scary yes. but it's so it is fun so yeah yeah and it ends up being so so rewarding once yep. once you nail it and you know i think that's that's everyone will have a pile of stinky compost once and then you learn from that and you know i think i think that's that's a really great thing because we're we're i always as a teacher i'd always say that to my students that teachers are learners too yes but you know adults are learners too we're we're, we're always experimenting and learning and and embrace that that part of compost making journey yep, absolutely <laughs> so a minute ago you mentioned compost failures so can you coach me through a few of mine <laughs> Yes, okay. please. <laughs> All right. Well, I don't know if it, the one, the first one's maybe not a failure as much as I'm pretty sure I'm not doing it correctly, but I do, I'm still doing yes. it that way regardless. So we do have, we have <laughs> so much cow and horse manure on our property. So like we'll yes. keep our animals in a, um, in a pen during the winter and then we scrape the pin yes. up and then put it in a pile. And yes. I have a little bit of brown in there, like maybe some dried hay or some dried straw, but most of it's manure. And mm. I mean, to get enough carbon in there to balance it would be a lot of carbon so how i yes. guess how bad is that is it still is it is it ever going to be compost or is it just aged manure like what are your thoughts on that it, it won't be compost if it's just manure okay uh, but aged manure is a great soil amendment so adding fresh manure to your garden especially if it's something like poultry manure is problematic because poultry manure for instance has a really high cn ratio it's jam-packed with nitrogen so much we call it a hot manure Um, it can actually burn your plants so you have to compost it down or you have to age it aging manure in a separate pile is actually a good thing to do. It's great if you can have some some carbon in there. But if you don't, if you're just aging it, then it, the volume will decrease significantly because manure is really high in water. Mm-hmm. Um, and when it has aged and when the volume has decreased, adding the, those smaller amounts into your compost with a sm- relatively smaller amount of carbon becomes more manageable. You could also think about uh, so we have we have chickens. We, we're going to get sheep, which I'm excited about. We're not quite there yet. Yeah. <laughs> we've, we've just we've purchased our property just before Christmas. So we, I'm slowly plotting and planning and dreaming about all the things that we're going to have. So in our <laughs> in our chicken run, I have what's called a deep litter system. Yes. So I I have a lot of carbon and I have biochar mixed into that deep litter system. Biochar is a really stable form of carbon, which I make myself, and it helps with odours. It also helps with having that injection of lots of carbon into the mix to get the right bacteria in that deep litter system with our chickens. Um, And so the chickens poo into the the shredded up leaves and wood chips and biochar, and then I rake that out once a season and add that into my compost piles. And... It's, that's a great a great system if you can if you can get it set up uh, because you have that CN ratio in place in in their bedding. But if you don't aging it in a separate pile is fine. But you you won't it, it isn't compost that you're making. Okay, you have to have 
carbon and nitrogen balance to actually make compost. In things like leaf mold piles or, or wood chip piles, people call it compost, sure. you know, but it, it, it actually is more of just a soil amendment. Um, but there's, there's definitely piling up manure and aging it is a really useful thing to do if you have a lot of it because it can become feel so unmanageable, you know, having sure. these massive piles that are so big that you're turning with with the tractor. Um, but once it's decreased in volume, then it becomes more workable as to, to what to do with it. And you can add aged manure onto your garden beds as well. You do need to be aware of what you're feeding your paddle and but you know if you're if you're feeding your your paddle safe inputs then that's going to be safe for your soil yeah okay so use that i like what you're saying here use use the age manure as an ingredient in the compost but it's not compost in and of itself which makes total sense what i've always had that like gray area so i'm glad to have that cleared up (laughs) then my other question about my pile of aged manure so forever i just assume since it's basically straight manure with very little brown material carbon material that it was had to be just Mm. like high in nitrogen so i tested it with a soil test kit last summer and i was shocked when the results yes. came back that it was actually low in nitrogen yes and that's because nitrogen isn't stable okay you, and you had so, said the stable part okay um, so it's like is it yes. because it's exposed to the elements that it's correct going away okay so if i wanted to preserve the nitrogen yes. i need to like cover it with a tarp or something yes. or protect it well but but also add carbon because then the I, yeah the, okay. your compost is low so finished compost is going to be lower in nitrogen than freshly met, freshly pooed manure, mm. um, but that's because nitrogen is not stable. So it off gases into the air. If your pile of manure has been rained on, yeah. it gets leached away in rain. But actually, what is what's left in your in your pile is easier to work with because if you have fresh fresh manure that's really high in nitrogen. If you're wanting to use that in compost, you need an awful lot of carbon. So once it has decreased, it's actually easier to work with as well. Um, but yeah, it's, it is interesting because these these elements, you know, we we feel like we're in control of how much, you know, we say, oh, well, sheep manure has X amount of nitrogen, but actually it's not stable. So you can also just think about where you're placing your piles of manure. If you know you have got soil that's really lacking in nitrogen and is, is um, quite low, pile your manure there and age it in, in an area of soil that needs it and your life so when as things get if rain washes over it and the the nitrogen leaches out then the life in your soil will consume that nitrogen and then feed it to the plants okay that's good to know thank you for clearing that up i've had that question for like a year now and you finally answered it so <laughs> i this was like oh, good. my favorite part of the whole interview i think <laughs> although it was the whole interview was great so thank you for that you are truly the compost coach <laughs> so um oh my goodness so I just realized we're running up on our time, which this this conversation flew by. So much good stuff. I think my last big question for you would be, let's say someone is living in an apartment or in a, a small urban environment. They don't have a lot of land. They don't have a full-fledged homestead. I know you mentioned yes. Share Waste, that app or that website. Is there any other inspiration or ideas um, or advice you could offer someone? You know, they're feeling that urge to not put their food scraps in the trash bag. So how could they continue along this idea of sustainability and uh, regenerative farming, even if they're not technically farming or homesteading? 
Yeah, absolutely. Such a good question. I would say the answer is worms. So compost worms are really useful for small spaces. Mm. You can make your own DIY compost bin out of two food grade buckets. One of them you drill lots of holes in all around the sides. I like using an eight millimeter drill bit. So this is one of the DIYs I explained in my book. And you can do two things with it. So if you have a small garden, you can dig that up, that bucket with holes into the surrounding soil or even into a large garden pot. And that becomes an in-ground worm farm. Mm. And then you add the carbon-rich bedding materials into it, a handful of worms. Worms double in population size when the weather is warm every 90 days. So a small handful of worms can be a really active worm colony within a couple of months. And so you've added in your carbon bedding materials and then you can slowly add in your food waste and carbon and the worms will break that down along with the compost microbes in the mix. You can also, if you don't have any access to soil, put that the, the bucket with holes in another bucket and the compost lactate and the people call it worm wee or it, it's not worms don't wee, they're any poo. So, but the 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 breakdown of those juices that appear in the bottom can be collected in that extra bucket. And that's a really small contained unit. Make sure the buckets have lids. So you have that top bucket with a lid. And that's a really great DIY to get started because it's small, worms are really efficient. You do need to add carbon rich materials into a worm farm. If you just add food waste, then uh, you're going to have a worm farm failure because uh, worms don't have teeth. They work with compost microbes. So compost microbes proliferate on the, the surfaces of your food scraps and your carbon-rich material. And once they are sitting there, they're actually releasing enzymes and breaking down the food. And then worms come in and suck up that nutrient-rich slurry that's on the surface of all of your food scraps. So to optimise scraps for your worm farm, chop them up to create more surface area and balance them with your carbon-rich materials as mm, well. So okay. it could be um, ripped up cardboard. It could be a handful of autumn leaves. Um, it could be coconut core, which has it's not the most sustainable form of carbon. But, you know, we, we also need to think about the fact that you're doing something. So the fact that yes. you're starting somewhere is so, so good and so important. Um, so, you know, you don't have to be completely scared of commercial products when you're first getting started. But when I lived in Sydney and had a tiny backyard, I was known in the yeah, autumn months to go around raking the streets <laughs> to collect everyone else's yep. leaves. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> um, but, yeah, worms are a really great solution for, for small space living and for getting in on the compost making journey. Yeah. I've, I haven't gotten into worms yet, but I've been so close so many times. I think I just need to do it. I mean, I have lots of other, you know, age of newer and composty things happening, but just the worms have always intrigued me. And so, like you said, such a great idea for yeah. people in small spaces. Totally. And worm castings are, speaking of nitrogen, they're really high in nitrogen. They're higher than, than straight compost. Mm. So that's, yeah, it's, once you get worms, you'll, you'll fall in love, Jill. <laughs> yeah, I imagine I will. I feel like it could be a whole new obsession. Then I'll be even weirder yeah. than I am now. <laughs> so, but I'm good with that. It's a good kind of weird. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> totally. <laughs> oh, my goodness. This was the best, Kate. So much actionable information here. Now, your book, I was flipping through the digital version. It's fantastic. Um, if you love Kate Thank on you. this interview audience, you're going to love her book. 
we can't get it in the States, right? Is it just for... Yeah, yeah, okay. you can. Okay, yeah. just checking. It, it just hasn't... It hasn't... No, no, you can't. Okay. It hasn't been released in the, the States yet. So it's okay. coming out on the 22nd of August in the States. Awesome. And it's called The Compost Coach. Yes. And it, yeah, it features um, Kevin from Epic Gardening um, Compost Bays. Um, and it has lots of different interesting gardeners because, you know, as I said, compost making... There's so many different ways to do it. So I wanted to show how I do things, but also how other people do things so it can fit your own space and your own lifestyle. So I'm excited for your audience to read it. Yeah. Um, so I think, but yeah, by the time this episode airs, it will be out. So guys, go get a copy. Yeah, cool. It's one of those books. You guys know I'm, I love books, but I'm also picky which books I buy. Um, this is one of those books you want to have. Like, yeah, sure, you can Google information, but to, just to have it all from someone you trust in one uh, volume is gold. So go grab a copy. And then, Kate, where can people follow along with you online? I am known as Compostable Kate on Instagram and begrudgingly on TikTok. I, I also feel I begrudging t- about that platform. Yes. Oh, I know. I haven't. I have it on a sip, an old phone, so I don't have it on this phone because I just feel paranoid about you know, yeah. who's managing it and, and what data they're collecting. Yes. But you know, it's 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 a, lots of people are on it, and I have information that I want to be teaching lots of people. Exactly. So um, they're they're my two main social media platforms. I'm known as Compostable possible okay. fantastic well everybody go, <laughs> go have a look and thank you again for not only talking me through my own personal compost dilemmas but <laughs> just giving us so much inspiration i feel like a whole renewed interest in this this idea of composting even though i've done it for a long time so thanks for the little extra shot in the arm Oh, I'm so pleased to hear that. Yeah, it's 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 super fun. I think that's something that I want to emphasize. It is genuinely really fun. So explore it, experiment, and yeah, know that your soil is going to be so much happier and healthier because of it. Yes. Amen. <laughs> Thanks, Jill.